0: welcome to scu buzz my name is river and today i'll be speaking with pearl a bachelor of indigenous knowledge student majoring in law and justice pearl has received a 2023 new colombo plan scholarship to study in fiji Through her studies, she is investigating how Indigenous and Pacific Islander methodologies of combating climate change can inform Western law frameworks that address environmental challenges. Welcome to the podcast, Pearl. It's great to have you.
1: Thank you so much, River. I'm so excited to be here speaking with you
0: today. So shall we jump in and start with you telling us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your journey to your university education and career? and how you ended up in Fiji.
1: Sure. (laughs) Yeah, it's an interesting journey, one that I wasn't expecting to be on, which is all the more exciting. Um, So yeah, as you said, I am a second-year Indigenous knowledge student from FCU. Um, I'm 20 years old and I've grown up on Bundjalung country around the Byron Shire. Now I find myself across the Pacific Ocean in the little (laughs) island country of Fiji, um, which is so incredible. (laughs) So, yeah, I had an interesting journey to university. I wouldn't say I was always that motivated to pursue a career or um, go to university for any particular thing upon finishing high school. Um, And it wasn't really until I found this Indigenous Knowledge degree at SCU that I found that motivation to begin that academic journey and think about the possibilities of where it could lead me. So, yeah, I'd say I... I came across indigenous knowledge and my passion for it throughout high school and especially when I attended a school camp trip to Kakadu National Park in Arnhem Land when I was about 16. And that trip really solidified my, my passion and my my interest to pursue more um, knowledge from my local Bundjalung area and to pursue it further in my everyday life and um, following finishing school. So that experience really really it gave me such an incredible uh feeling of of belonging and a purpose that I'd never experienced before and that was the first of its kind and what motivated me to um to attend university after following school so yeah I found the indigenous knowledge degree and I paired it with the major in law and justice because I was also really interested in looking at social justice movements and looking at how the law frequently lets down disadvantaged groups in society and how I can be a part of attempting to change some of that and infiltrate the Western law frameworks that govern us all and how we can slowly um, change them from inside out or more radically tear them down to one or the other to create a better world um, and a more mutually respectful and official world for us all going forward. So that's why I paired it with the... um, the Law and Justice major, which has been really useful and I'm pursuing that further here in CG. So yes, my journey to receiving this New Colombo Plan scholarship was a little bit different, I think, to most because SCU reached out to me and and encouraged me to apply and said that I was eligible to be nominated for this scholarship. Uh, and at the time, I was really not in a super <laughs> uni headspace and had lots of a Of other things going on in my life and I was just sort of like oh yeah like I'll attend this zoom session and see what this is about and was so happy that I did because the zoom session with Jordan Ivey a previous NCP scholar was super inspiring and motivating um, and made me sort of have a new idea about what I could do and pushed me to yeah think about this as a potential thing to achieve in my life. So after attending that Zoom session, I decided to pursue the application process. And upon doing that, I really found myself thinking about things I wanted to do in my life and being pushed to have those reflections, which I'd never really been pushed to do before. And that process was really valuable to me just to think outside of the box and um, find motivation and inspiration and, um, yeah, think about achieving grand things in my life that you know, I had to do for the application process and otherwise I wouldn't have necessarily thought about those types of things. So yeah, then I was, I got to the the next level, which was the interview phase, which was super exciting and nerve wracking and spent a few months um, preparing for that. And once that was over, I sort of just let go of the, of the stress and and the pressure of whether or not I got it and just got on with my life. But I think it was late November that I got a call and I actually almost missed out on accepting my offer because I hadn't been checking my emails because uni had finished and I was just like getting on with it and I was like oh I'm not sure if you saw this email a few days ago but um you've been offered the new convo Plan scholarship and we need to know if you want to accept it because otherwise you know it'll automatically be a no and I was like oh my goodness of course and even at that point I wasn't sure if it was something I could achieve I think I was limiting myself in my mind just didn't really think that I could do something like this and hadn't pictured it for myself, but I accepted nonetheless. And, and then began the process of, of planning my program and these replications and all that other stuff. And wasn't really thinking about the reality of it, just going along with it and, and hoping that everything would turn out fine, which it did. <laughs> and here I am.
0: Wow. What a journey you've been on. So I want to backtrack a little bit and, and speak about your your time in kakadu National park where you said that experience had sparked your first interest in indigenous knowledge systems what was it about that trip that really kind of put you on this pathway towards where you are now
1: yeah it's interesting to look back on I think before that even um I was always really drawn to reading about Australia's history and you know particularly the dark colonial side of white settle settlers coming here and all of the things that happened from then obviously we know there was a lot of incredibly dark and horrible events so i was always really interested and fascinated in those topics and never really knew much about it so i had that already sort of in the back of my mind from a young age and that trip to kakadu was i think really confronting at but at the same time it was know the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen and ever felt before in my life so you know the confrontation that came from witnessing poverty in Australia and you know after not realizing that that exists necessarily and then being thrust into the middle of it but at the same time witnessing such an incredibly beautiful rich and vibrant community with so much happiness and so much generosity and so much beauty in there that was just an incredible experience that I'd never Felt the way I did on that camp before, and that feeling really stayed with me afterwards. Uh, I couldn't shake it even if I wanted to, and and because of that motivation from you know the feeling, the feeling that um, that I maintained from that experience, I started seeking out more of my local Bundjalung community and attending local cultural camps and seeking relationship building from people within my school system, people within my wider community. Um, so, yeah, it was, wasn't an option to forget about that camp after I'd done it because it really, really impacted me and that, that was the first time I'd felt the way, the feeling that gave me. But since then um, it's been a very prominent theme of my life because, yeah, I've been a part of these incredible initiatives and meeting incredible people and just a really inspiring, motivating
0: way to live, I think. Mm. And so what was it like when you came back to Bunjalung country connecting with mob here? Did you notice a difference in the knowledge systems here uh, as opposed to in Kakadu? And and what would you be able to as well tell us a little bit about what those culture camps were like and what it was like to build those relationships with elders and First Nations people here in Bunjalung?
1: Yeah, so of course I noticed really great differences and since then, I've travelled to many different parts of Australia, also seeking out, you know, meeting and building relationships with local Indigenous community members. And everywhere you go, there is so much diversity within those knowledge systems and those people because, of course, Australia is made up of many different mobs from many different ways of life, but they all share similar concepts um, and similar philosophies, which is really beautiful to draw those similarities, but also recognise the incredible diversity and differences um, yeah coming back to Bundjalung country and seeking out those relationships for the first time in my life was an interesting experience I think some some of my friends and people around me were a bit confused and wasn't sure like you know my place as a non indigenous person trying to be in those spaces and I think that was also quite challenging for me knowing what my place was and why it was okay for me to you know be wanting to seek out this knowledge but i quickly sort of had a shift in in perspective after building those relationships and continually going back to the same people and the same culture camps and things that i mentioned before and and yeah feeling that incredible acceptance and generosity from the local community and the feeling like there was opportunity for us to build really beneficial partnerships and go forward even you know with that difference in in the background of who we were and our knowledge systems. So yeah, I think it was challenging and definitely still is at some points, but overwhelmingly beautiful as well and felt really really right to be doing that.
0: So what has it been like studying indigenous knowledge systems and law and justice in Fiji? Have you have you had the opportunity in Fiji to connect with the local indigenous groups there?
1: yeah it's been a really, really interesting place to study this, um because you know I'm only three and a half hours on a plane across the ocean, and there are a lot of similarities in terms of you know colonization happened in both places, but it has played out very, very differently. and here in the Pacific, um indigenous knowledge systems and traditional practices are still very, very prominent within social and governance structures and it's it very much rules the everyday lives of people here which is very very different from australia where you know colonial eurocentric systems are the dominating ones and you sort of have to have to seek out indigenous knowledge if you if you want to but otherwise it's quite hard to find so that it's been really fascinating seeing how different they are but still set uh, share similar challenges and i think particularly For me, I've been focusing on more of like a sustainable development lens over here in Fiji. And so looking at the challenges that the current um, system prevents for development here is really interesting and looking at the nuances between, you know, what the locals want for themselves and what foreign aid is trying to make happen, which, you know, they need, but they um, also, yeah, it's just a really, really tricky intersection of Western and traditional, which, I think is unavoidable and happens everywhere, but it's been a really stark comparison um, between home and and here, which, yeah, I had no idea how fascinating it would be. And it's really highlighted some of those struggles that both of us face, but in very different ways. (laughs) It's hard to explain and I'm still, you know, I'll be learning for the rest of my time here. And I, I don't think I'll ever really understand and be able to draw conclusions on it all, but it's, yeah, it's been super interesting to witness and to hear all the different perspectives of locals and also like foreign people living here and how those differ.
0: Mm. So do you have any information about the, the history of um, when you were talking about the government in Fiji and how there's Indigenous knowledge systems incorporated into the government and, and policy and that access that people have to that information um, there in Fiji. Do you have any information regarding the history of how those policies and how those indigenous knowledge systems were incorporated into the government and if uh, in Fiji and if that was always there or if it was something that the local indigenous people of Fiji worked towards?
1: Yeah, I think that colonialism was. They very differently affected the Pacific than Australia. Like, obviously, in Australia, there was a much greater eradication of traditional cultures and peoples and knowledges, which is why those um, Eurocentric systems have developed to be the dominant ones. Whereas here, I think the way it was colonized and because it's such a geographically isolated and dispersed place, the Indigenous ways of living remained prominent and colonialism never really broke them down like it did in Australia. So I think it always maintained that, whereas Australia didn't. So it's been less less of a regaining and more of a thing that has stayed. But there's also been an element of um, decolonisation within the, within the government systems here, which has probably worked better than it has in Australia because of those reasons I just mentioned. Um, but it's interesting, it's not necessarily the... Indigenous knowledge being incorporated into the government. So, the government systems are still quite similar to what we have in Australia, and it's very based on that Western framework. And those are still the, the superior on paper. Um, but when it comes to reality, traditional systems are the things that most of the time trump the actual laws. <laughs> and that's just because it's so embedded in the society that, um, you know, all the people working in government are. They sort of they served that system before they serve the, the Western system. So yeah, I think it's more of a socially entrenched thing rather than you know what it actually looks like on paper because when it does come to the crunch of it Western systems and the the government does make the final decisions but before that it often is um, very much focused on the traditional ways of dealing with things and the traditional ways of, of going about everything. Um, And that's particularly evident when looking at the way land is managed here, which is really interesting when you compare it to Australia um, because over 80% of land here is held under traditional land tenure. Whereas, you know, in Australia, our version of that is things like native title and indigenous land use agreements, which we can see don't really have much practical effect, um, whereas here they really do. And there's only 20% throughout the whole Pacific that is freehold and and owned by yeah people that can just buy and sell it but the rest of the time it's you know communally owned and it's it's owned by the villagers and the villages are run a lot more traditionally you know where there's a traditional hierarchy and a chief and and that is the dominant system that people follow rather than a western law framework which is very very fascinating coming from a place where that doesn't happen at all
0: So what is the importance of having traditional land owned by traditional owners in in Fiji? What are some of the differences that you notice with the way the land is managed and the way that First Nations people can have access to that land?
1: Mm, Well, it's amazing just driving through the countryside here and just driving from one side of the island to the other, which from the main cities, Nandi and Suva, and you just cross through village after village and you notice that you know, it's not all built up and there's only some parts that are filled by the resorts, unfortunately, which, you know, is the freehold land that is owned by many foreign people, Australians, New Zealand, US, Chinese, Japanese, all of those people. And they've, you know, done their grand thing and built their fancy, wealthy resort for us to go spend so much money out to support them and not the locals. But the rest of the land is yeah, held under the traditional land tenure and it's owned by the community and those villagers are able to live somewhat self-sufficiently and grow their own food and have access to their traditional practices and harvesting and farming and all of those things and say no to foreign developers or the government wanting to come in and change that land for the benefit of some and not for the benefit of the locals. So yeah, it's amazing witnessing the um, practical control that this system allows, That the villages here and yeah it's it's really really cool but also yeah it has some challenges as well so it's really tricky to understand it all and and different villages and communities obviously want different things and have different perspectives on what is the best thing for them so some do want that development to come in and and want it to be catered more towards a, a touristy western audience which is totally understandable but um, also can be detrimental to them in the long run as well. So it's a tricky space to interact with, but really cool to observe how they still have so much control over their traditional lands and how that
0: benefits them a lot. Hmm. Would you say as well that having traditional owners of traditional land also benefits people who come and visit that place, people who come and visit that land who aren't from there?
1: Definitely, 100%. And... Yeah, imagine in Australia if the land was still predominantly held under traditional tenure, there would be so much less destruction and, you know, maybe we wouldn't be looking at the world falling apart in front of our eyes if they still had control over what happened on those lands because, yeah, as we can see throughout history, it is not the traditional custodians who are the ones cutting down all the trees and, and bombing, you know, the earth's minerals and extracting everything it is the ones driven by corporate greed and individual gain that are doing that so yeah it's definitely true that places where traditional people have control over their traditional lands are still flourishing and more resource abundant and a better place for everyone to visit and to live on and yeah the whole world to be better
0: Mm. So speaking about traditional tenure, that kind of bleeds into um, this part of your degree and this part of your journey with, with education surrounding law and justice, I imagine, uh, moving into a space, for example, in Australia where we can see more traditional tenure and um, land, own- land ownership. Would you be able to tell us about how you incorporate your study of traditional knowledge systems and law and justice and why it's important for you to combine those two together.
1: It's such a tricky thing to think about um, because I guess, especially in Australian context, there's not really an option if you want to make a difference to not understand the dominant systems that we live under and to not sort of enter into those. I mean, you can focus on um, doing it from outside of that and staying at a, grassroots community level which I definitely also believe in but for me personally I felt like it's necessary to engage in yeah western law and learning about our system and learning it to a level where I can understand it enough to see the way it works and the ways where it has opportunity to change and it's tricky for me because I've predominantly maintained a view that we need you know quite a, a radical shift and that the system that we live under doesn't really allow room for the change required because it is built on the fundamental principles that don't allow the change that is needed so it's really tricky to think about how that's possible and yeah I'm still I'm learning about that a lot while I'm here and I'm learning about it continuously wherever I am and I hope that (laughs) something becomes clearer to me along the way but at the moment I'm really happy to be learning about both and The reality is we need to find a way to meet in the middle and try and um, utilise both frameworks to create um, a better world for not only Indigenous communities but all of us, especially when we look at facing the impending climate crisis that is affecting so many people at the moment now. So, yeah, I think it's really important for me to look at how we can do that collaboration and those effective partnerships, which requires an understanding of both. And um, yeah, I'm committed to learning about our Western law systems as well as always seeking out the Indigenous frameworks and Indigenous legal systems, which I believe can incredibly benefit the Western ones and us in general moving into the future.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned earlier that you yourself are non-Indigenous. How important is it for non-Indigenous people to educate themselves on Indigenous knowledge systems and to enter into this field of Indigenous knowledge systems to incorporate in their everyday life?
1: Yeah, it's a very important point and I think I was touching on it before as I was getting more into this space sort of in my teenage years and having people around me be a bit confused and a bit worried that I wasn't uh, in the right, you know, I wasn't able to do that because I was one indigenous and I struggled with that a lot personally. But ultimately it is our absolute responsibility and obligation as non-Indigenous people living on the stolen lands and living on lands that we inherently benefit from, like we inherently benefit from the oppression and continual exploitation of Indigenous lands, knowledges and peoples. So after just learning that, it was really hard to dismissed that obligation and responsibility to educate myself and become more involved in in this space and um, in thinking about ways forward. So yeah, I definitely hold a strong belief that it's really, really important for non-Indigenous peoples all around Australia to educate themselves about Australia's history, to engage with their local communities and to build relationships because I feel like if that happens locally, on um, a large scale, throughout Australia and throughout the world, that offers a really good opportunity for change um, to occur. I think that that the the shift in mindset is the main thing that's going to save us slowly over the next few decades, and I think that's happening. I can already witness it in the last few years, accelerating a lot. Um, that change in people's perspectives and the motivation for them to learn more and connect more with their local community and seek out how they can be assistance and how they can involve themselves. I feel like that's really um, accelerated in the last few years, which makes me really happy to witness. But yeah, it's incredibly important.
0: Yeah. And so for listeners uh, who are on Bundjalung Country um, listening into this podcast, do you have any recommendations for what organisations they can seek out? to access information and to connect with the First Nations people in Bundjalung country?
1: Yeah. Um, so there's always there's always things to involve yourself in and ways to learn if you sort of seek them out. You know, there's a lot of education that we can do individually, just at home, you know, reading books and researching. Um, that's always an amazing place to start. But on Bundjalung country, I mean, I think there's things that Gimmebee offers the be College from SCU that it's always good to be aware of and involve yourself in if you're in the local Lismore, Bungelung area. There's one organisation, the Returning Aboriginal Corporation, that I've attended a few of their, uh, their cultural camps. Um, they happen a few times a year and are open to people of all backgrounds and of all places in society, and I think those are a really special place to involve yourself in if you get the opportunity to do that. There's, yeah, there's other things that happen periodically at home, like, um, you know, the Invasion Day protests and Reconciliation Action Week and all of those types of things. And so involving yourselves in events that happen during those times are really important. And I think just trying to seek out relationships that you can build and, and coming from a genuine personal place rather than a place where you're trying to gain something out of it or something else in your life but just genuinely wanting to build those relationships is always going to get you the furthest so yeah in whatever way that feels right for you I think yeah it's an individual journey but there's many opportunities for it to happen
0: Mm. and so how's this experience of studying Indigenous knowledge systems has it in any way inspired you to explore and look at your own cultural ancestry as well and what that means alongside these other indigenous knowledge systems
1: yeah mm-hmm. definitely that's been really interesting because yeah I think I mentioned earlier that fearing i I got on that trip I went on in high school to kakadu was so amazing because I hadn't previously experienced um, a connection to an ancestral line or a culture before because I'd you know, my family and like a lot of families in Australia are quite disconnected, sorry, from their ancestry. I definitely am interested in looking into more of my cultural background and um, exploring what that means for me and reconnecting to it. My mum's side is Croatian and Serbian. Quite recently, she was first generation Australian and her first language was Yugoslavian. And so I think that would be a really cool thing to, I've got so much family over there and I'd love to go and and really spend some time getting to know who that is and what that means for me and yeah especially because it is so recent I feel like I'm quite lucky to have that still living inside of inside of me <laughs> over there and within my recent recent family and I think for my dad it's a little bit trickier because he's been in Australia for quite a few generations and that ancestry is a lot less recent and a lot more disconnected but uh, his ancestry is predominantly Irish and Scottish and I would absolutely love to reconnect to that and to go spend some time over there and I think there's so much incredible traditional knowledge and, yeah, systems, traditional systems contained in those cultures as well that I haven't taken the time to explore and I think that there's great opportunity there for me um, to go on more of a personal journey and see how that can assist in whatever I end up doing in my life for sure. Yeah.
0: Do you think it's it's an important part of the process of decolonization for people who may be living on stolen land from a colonial history for them to reconnect to their ancestral roots and their cultural roots from their ancestors' home country? Do you think that's an important part of decolonization?
1: 100 percent yeah i think you know we all originate from somewhere and at some point in history we were all living within an indigenous culture on the earth Um, and you know before all of this capitalism industrialization globalization hit the world we were all sort of living in a community like like the indigenous ones today and i think that a very important part of decolonization is reconnecting to your personal roots and even just exploring it, you know, sometimes reconnecting is really not an option, but exploring where you come from and exploring what makes you up instead of just accepting that it's it's lost or it's not a part of your life. Um, I think it's really important and would, yeah, create incredible change just in people's, in people's mindsets if they had some Better idea or connection to where they came from and what it is that makes up their genetic makeup.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think it's a really interesting journey for everyone. So, we've got time for one last question today. What advice do you have for students or potential students listening in who are thinking of studying Indigenous knowledge systems?
1: Go for it. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's so well worth it for everyone even if you're not wanting to go into a particular career or something that is in this area i think um it's such essential information for everyone no matter who they are or, or what they're considering on doing it has given me so much it's such a comprehensive degree um you really look at so many different areas and i think most other professions that people go into could benefit a lot from this knowledge that um, you learn in the Indigenous Knowledge Degree, it really, really is beneficial for all aspects of society and and all potential professions and careers that people go into. So, yeah, I would definitely recommend it. And I'd say just go for it. When I was thinking about going to uni, I was really, really unsure and, and I honestly was just like, you know, why not um, give it a go, what can go wrong type of attitude. And I'm so grateful that I did because it's taken me places that I would never have thought I could go. And yeah, it really opened up my world and made me excited for my future, which I don't think I previously had.
0: So yeah, go for it. Amazing. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Pearl. It's been such a pleasure to have you.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been great to talk with you.
0: We would like to acknowledge the Widjable Wyable people of Bundjalung Country as the traditional owners of this land. We would like to acknowledge and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging.